0: Welcome in to News and Views with Tom Lamprecht. The stories you've heard and the ones you need to hear.
1: The
2: air bombs they keep mar- killing Ukrainian people. If Russia conducts disruptive cyber attacks against critical infrastructure, we will be prepared to respond.
1: We're looking at eastern Texas. and am moving into portions of Arkansas, Louisiana. Property damage is devastating. It's a loss.
0: Court packing is bad. It's a bad time to do it. Especially because there's no good reason to do it. Your life, your values, your voice. This is News and Views with Tom Lamprecht on Talk 96.3 and
1: 103.7.
0: All right, welcome in. Another edition of News and Views. Got a good program for you. Got an interesting interview. Uh, We've talked a lot about uh, the public school systems, CRT, transgenderism, pornography in the public school libraries. We're going to be talking to A.P. Dillon in, uh, later in the program about a organization out there, the Innovative Project, and uh, TIP for short, which is uh, a little questionable. We'll get more from A.P. Dillon, who writes for the North State Journal. Day two got underway in the Supreme Court Judiciary Committee's confirmation of Judge Katenji Brown-Jackson. Senator Tom Tillis in his opening comments, was uh, tactful but fair, according to the Carolina Journal. I, for one, think you have a strong track record of ethical values, honesty, integrity, respecting others, and endeavoring to be fair, just, and compassionate, he said. Confirming a Supreme Court justice is one of the most important responsibilities, I think I have said I have to do as a senator. The outcome of our decision will impact millions of lives in the very structure of our future and our constitutional republic. In my opinion, a justice's job job is to interpret the text and words of the Constitution as written and give them their original meaning. I reject the notion that the Constitution is a living evolutionary document that changes on the impulses of five unelected justices. A good judge must understand that his or her job isn't to legislate from the bench and reach their preferred policy outcomes into statutes. He concluded by saying that while he thinks Jackson has the right temperament for the job, based on how she reacted to statements put forth at the hearing, he does have some additional questions and concerns he wants to ask her about, having the right mindset for a judge to be on the Supreme Court. I will focus on better understanding of your writings, your political activities and opinions, with the goal of determining your philosophy and whether it fits my conception of the right philosophical philosophy for someone to be on the Supreme Court. Now, what's interesting about this is she has come out and says, I have no judicial philosophy. Wait wait a minute. How can you have no judicial philosophy? That's like saying, I have no perspective on life. I have no worldview. She's a justice. She's been a judge for, what, the last 12 years. She's only been at the D.C. uh, Court of Appeals for the last year or so. Before that, she was at a, a district court. But she's She's a justice, and she says, "I have no judicial philosophy." That's an impossibility. every judge has a judicial philosophy. conservatives have a judicial philosophy moderates do, and liberals do, but she apparently has none. what is uh, you want to hear her judicial philosophy you can you can ascertain it from this article out of town hall judge. Brown-Jackson, currently testifying before the committee, as her nomination to the Supreme Court is considered, has a track record not too dissimilar from any other woke academic. And despite the Democratic spin that says criticism of Biden's SCOTUS nominee to replace Judge Breyer are uh, trumped-up claims based on sexist, race, racist bigotry, the judge's own words in her Senate Judiciary Questionnaire makes her beliefs clear. And one document included in the Senate Judiciary Questionnaire remarks titled Fairness in Federal Sentencing and Examination lay out what Judge Jackson believes and has sought to impart. This is from her Senate Judiciary Questionnaire. I also try to convince my students that sentencing is just plain interesting on an intellectual level, in part Because it melds together myriad types of law. Are you ready for this? Now listen to this carefully. This is what all melds together. Criminal law, of course, but also administrative law, constitutional law, critical race theory, negotiations, to some extent, even contracts, And if that's not enough to prove to them that sentencing is a subject worth studying, I point out that sentencing policy implicates and intersects with various other intellectual uh, disciplines, as well including philosophy, psychology, history, statistics, economics, and politics. So Judge Jackson who was previously served on the U.S. Sentencing Commission and then as a judge, handing down sentences herself, believes that the radical left's construction of critical race theory is to be a part of the sentencing process with the actual law and the Constitution. So, right there. You want to know what her judicial philosophy is? You just heard it. Now, do you think somebody's going to be fair? Do you think... uh, so, So, at this point... The justice that's supposed to be blindfolded, obviously, if you're going to meld in critical race theory, this judge is going to be looking at your race before handing down a sentence. Though Judge Jackson also says her sentence, or her Senate judiciary questionnaire materials has seen an addition in an edition of Georgetown Days Magazine after Jackson joined the Georgetown Day School. You want to know her philosophy? When she was on the board of the Georgetown Day School. Since becoming a part of the Georgetown Day School community seven years ago, Patrick, her husband, and I have witnessed the transformative power of a rigorous progressive education that is dedicated to fostering critical thinking, independence, and social justice. And just what does the Georgetown Day School's progressive education mean? And dedication to social justice look like in practice? Well, according to their website, during the time she was a board member, it means events like the Transgender Day of Visibility that urge students to quote, use your voice, your platform, and your network to communicate your support for transgender rights, the trans community the transgender people, and particularly trans youth and black trans women who are most often um, targeted. (laughs) You want to know her judicial philosophy? You're hearing it. In addition, the school noted second-grade teacher Azariu Harrison suggested attending the April 1st event Intersectionality and Abolitionist Teaching Centering Queer Voices, hosted by Abolitionist Teaching Network and including Guy Gross of Woke Kindergarten. (laughs) That's a bunch of progressive gobbledygook. Uh, It makes sense that Judge Jackson, who wants to combine critical race theory with established law, would also favor progressive education. That's rife with theories constituting, uh, uh, constituting social justice like many other activists on the left, their ideal future is one where social justice warriors rely on concocted theories from leftist ideologues to supplant U.S. Constitution and determine what's right and what's wrong. Bingo. So, um, wh- what is this Supreme Court justice going to look to when she figures out is something right or wrong? Now, by, by now, and by the way, she gets up and she says, "Oh, I love the Constitution." I love the Constitution. The problem is she loves critical race theory as much as the Constitution. That's the problem, and that's her judicial philosophy. Judge Jackson's embrace of woke ideology can be further seen in another set of prepared remarks for a Harvard Alumni Association Unity webinar, which Jackson moderated just last year, just last fall. That hadn't even been a year ago. In a section headed diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, Another buzz phrase used by leftist activists. Judge Jackson used a litany of woke language, including "Latinx." She, can, by the way, um, Hispanics don't like that term. She conti- and they considered a racist term, but Judge Jackson used it. She continued with a question in environmental justice and the impacts of the climate crisis on communities of color. Did you get that? Environmental justice and the impacts of climate crisis on communities of color. If that isn't a progressive statement, I don't know what is. Just these few examples from the information Judge Jackson turned over to the Senate illustrates what happens when woke leftist ideology goes from being merely merely a theory talked about in campus to uh, to having someone embrace that, go into the U.S. government, and actually end up on our Supreme Court. She says she doesn't have a judicial philosophy. She's lying. Look, Everybody does. Everybody has a philosophy of life. Now, perhaps you haven't thought it through, and perhaps you think, well, I don't know, what's my philosophy? What prism do I look at life through? She's looking through the prism of critical race theory and social justice, and she admits it. And that's how she's going to judge. That's how she's going to bring down her verdicts. Whether or not she loves the Constitution or not, I don't know. But what I do know is she doesn't love it any more than she loves critical race theory. And between critical race theory, social justice, being a progressive, uh, and all these other things that she mentions when uh, she considers handing down a sentence yeah her 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 decisions. They're not going to look like someone who believes in the Constitution as a foundational document, someone who is a, an originalist who believes that we interpret the Constitution as, as the writers of the Constitution meant it. No way. No possible way. Um, one of the um, people on the committee— Someone by the name of, uh, you know her name, Mazie Hirono, senator from Hawaii, not the uh, brightest bulb in the pack. She uh, followed orders. She's trying to be a good liberal soldier. This is cut three, Clark. Um, this is what she said. Now she tried, you know, as they always do, and they usually fall on their face. She tried to smear Republicans. And so this is her one of her—a uh, segment of her opening comments about Judge Jackson, and they literally blew up in her face. Now listen to the irony. See if you can get the irony of what Hirano had to say about Judge Jackson.
2: Some of my Republican colleagues and public figures have attempted to undermine your qualifications through their pejorative use of the term affirmative, affirmative action, and they have implied— you were solely nominated due to your race and not for other factors. Apparently, some have even claimed that you need to show your LSAT scores to determine whether you are a top legal mind. This is incredibly offensive and condescending. Let me be clear. Your nomination is about, not about filling a quota. It is about time. It's about time that we have a highly qualified, highly accomplished black woman on the Supreme Court. It's about time our highest court better reflects the country it serves. It's about time that black women and girls across the country can finally see themselves who look like them sitting on the highest court, making decisions that will impact their lives.
0: (laughs) So did you get it? She says, of the Republicans, they have implied you were solely nominated due to your race. Your nomination is not about filling a quota. And then she goes on to say, it's about time we have a highly qualified, accomplished black woman serving on the Supreme Court. <laughs> and it, is, it somehow is racist and bigotry if they ask, can we see your scores from law school? I mean, is that not? I mean it sounds to me like that's ought to be a qualification. You know, are you are you qualified for the job? But no, you're not allowed to ask that. That's racist. But the idea that this isn't about race. My gosh, that's all that Joe Biden's been talking about that he is it, it doesn't matter. I mean, we talked about that when he came out and said it. The fact that this president was bound and determined nominate a black woman thus by eliminating all kinds of other candidates whether they be black white male or female Uh, well if if you had to have the combination of black and female you qualified everybody else no Um, she contradicted herself quite badly rather absurd but uh, you know what no surprise and we're going to take a time out. We come back. We're going to be joined by A.P. Dillon. We'll be talking about something that's going on in North Carolina right now. This uh, left A.P. and I both scratching our heads. Stay with us. More news and views coming up right after this.
2: Whatever it's-
0: This is your Drive at Five, an ENC with Tom Lamprecht. Welcome back to News and Views on Talk 96.3 and 103.7. Welcome back in. We have been talking for at least the last several weeks, if not the last several months, about things that are taking place in our public schools, from CRT to transgenderism to blatant pornography allowed and even promoted in our schools, some required reading, Sometimes it's just promoted in the library. It's just, uh, it's available in the library. In some cases, it's probably illegal as minors are exposed to some of these publications. But now, according to a series of articles by A.P. Dillon, which were featured in the North State Journal, a number of school districts are paying some rather high fees for their superintendents to be a part of an organization whose mission statement appears to be rather confusing at best. Let me read the mission statement. The innovation Innovation project brings together forward-thinking North Carolina school district superintendents to find and implement innovative innovative and transformative practices in public education so that students and their communities can thrive. What does that mean? I don't know. But uh, the one thing that you need to note, take that mission statement along with the leadership of this group, who have strong ties to progressive organizations. And uh, it doesn't make for a good combination. With us right now on the phone is AP Dillon. AP, welcome to News and Views. Good to have you with us.
1: Thanks for having me on. So how did
0: you come across this uh, this group, the Innovation Project, or TIP for short?
1: Um, I received some emails from a few parents in a couple of districts, uh, who had taken notice of their superintendents being affiliated with this group. It was not something that I had seen before or was on my radar, so I took a dive into them, and what I found was a nonprofit basically charging membership due fees uh, to, to, to the districts for these superintendents um, that were <laughs> a little bit eye-raising. You
0: and I talked earlier, you gave me some of the numbers, share with our audience, I mean, because we're not talking about, oh, $150 and you can be a part of our group for a year. What kind of numbers are we talking about that these school districts are paying for their superintendent to be a part of this innovation project?
1: Well, it it depends on the district and how long that they've been in there, but the average membership fee is somewhere around the $30,000 a year mark. $30,000
0: Thirty thousand dollars a year, and exactly what do they get? I mean, that's—I I can't imagine that there are other organizations that are that expensive.
1: Um, you know, I haven't come across any, but that doesn't mean that there aren't some out there. So, what
0: is this? But, yes, this what is this innovation is project? The what? What, what, are the, what does the superintendent get for the thirty thousand dollars?
1: That's a good question. Um, I've sent multiple emails to this organization and uh, called the phone number that I was able to find for them, and no one has responded to or acknowledged any of my attempts to contact them for more information. Um, Memos that were attached to some of the invoices that I got through records requests to some of the districts that I knew were involved talked about recruiting more superintendents to it but didn't actually say what they were going to be doing. And again so your guess is as good as mine.
0: <laughs> but but ultimately if they're paying $30,000 a year the, the taxpayers are paying $30,000 a year and this is per on on average as you said. I mean some school districts are more some are a little less but on average each school district that is a member is on average paying $30,000 a year. These are these are taxpayer dollars.
1: Yeah, they are. Um I, I sent records requests out to around 30 to 33 schools, somewhere around there, and I got about 21 of them to answer me within the last month or so. Um, and these dues span anywhere starting going back to 2017 all the way up through 2021. Um, some of these dues are for just a couple years. Some of them are for one year. So it was sort of all over the place. So I just did dollar totals. um, for each district with what they sent me. And the district that had spent the most was Wake County Schools. Uh, Between 2018 and 2020, they dropped $140,000 in payments to the innovation project. Um, Another high spender was uh, Rockingham County Schools. They spent over $124,000. A hundred thousand dollars between 2017 and 2021, but the average membership fee looks like it was coming in somewhere around the thirty thousand dollars a year range.
0: So, according to their website, they started back in 2015. Uh, what is the? What do they proclaim that they? I mean, is is there anything specific that they proclaim that they want to accomplish?
1: Well, it looks to me like they had been working to do work with uh, turnaround or restart schools in the beginning that was an interest to them, but uh, they've created some other projects that they, of course, have these very um, flowery, platitude-filled statements about you know the, the projects that they say will be initiative towards a network of place-based learning hubs, or the experimental pathways for jobs to tech and industry, or you know, these kinds of statements, but then they don't say what that work entails, where they're doing it, how they're doing it, or you know the nitty-gritty behind it.
0: In other words, they're all about hope and change.
1: Um, it seems like there's a bit of that in there. Um, they have a whole section on their website that uh, is called Crisis Transformation. And it centers on how they can take the circumstances created by COVID to reimagine public education. If that doesn't and, sound like
0: progressive gobbledygook, I don't know what does.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it, but then they don't really give a whole lot behind it. The same thing is with their uh, Solutions Creator Action Network, or what they call TIP Scan, um, they call that a, a transformative framework and structure. For tip member districts to respond to the upheaval generated by the COVID nineteen pandemic and re-examine long-standing district systems and processes. Okay, so what does that mean?
0: How oh, exactly? <laughs>
1: um, you know, and they don't really go into a lot of detail on the page, but they definitely went into detail about their about their concern over embedded structural racism, uh, the killing of George Floyd and uh, other transformative processes that we need um, in order to acknowledge that this is a time when, quote, systems are ripe for paradigm change.
0: uh, Again, that's pretty pretty, uh, uh, evident of where they're coming from. Uh, We're speaking to A.P. Dillon. Uh, She writes for the North State Journal, and she's done investigative reporting on the innovative project, an innovation project, which is this organization we're talking about. Tell me about the leadership in this group. And, uh, you know, I think one thing that would um, spell out a lot of uh, interesting, uh, well, make it curious anyway, is uh, what kind of salaries are the is the leadership receiving?
1: Um, well, looking at some of their 990 forms, they're making in excess of, of around one hundred and eighty to $200,000. Um, The two paid persons as of their last 990 form were Jerry, uh, not Jerry Hancock, it was Joe Ablandinger and Ann McCall. Ann McCall is one of the co-founders who formally started this thing back in July of 2015 with a man named Jerry Hancock. Um, Hancock and McCall were both associated with the Raleigh Law Firm Everett, uh, Everett Gaskins Hancock LLP. Um, in 2017, a couple of years later, they decided to turn TIP into a nonprofit. So um, their 990s are all out there for folks to go take a look at. Um, but the last time I took a look, the, the two of their salaries combined, it was just, it, it was a, probably just under half a million dollars.
0: What's their budget? What was their income? Um,
1: that's a good question. I don't have their, their actual 990 right in front of me at the moment, but um, it was in the millions. They've brought in a few um, grants from various organizations They got their startup money from the Z. Smith Reynolds Foundation, which has bankrolled a number of left-leaning organizations in the state, including uh, Blueprint NC, which is a network of left-leaning organizations in North Carolina. Um, so, I mean, they've also gotten grants from big, from big donation names like the Belk Foundation and uh, the W.K. Kellogg Foundation. Um, they got nearly a million dollars from the Belk Foundation. Um, so there's there's a lot of money there, and uh, about the same amount from the Kellogg Foundation. Um, so there's money coming in from outside in the in form of grants, but the money coming inside is almost equivalent. I mean, I've, looking at the what the districts gave between 2017 and 2021, just in the ones that I was able to gain information from, it was like $1.35 million in taxpayer dollars.
0: How many school districts are members of the TIP, the Innovation Project?
1: Well, I had about 30 some odd districts on my list that had known associations in the past or the current or were currently members. Um, So I did records requests for just about all of them. Uh, 21 of them wrote back to me and gave me the information which came in with the 1.35 million that I, I just recently stated. But there's another 12 districts that have yet to respond to me on those payments.
0: So the um, uh, the other districts, other than the 12, have said, no, we don't have anything to do with it? How many districts are uh, there in the state? Is there 100, right, Is the same number of counties? or
1: um, There are 115 districts in okay. North Carolina. Uh, the 12 that haven't answered the records request yet, I, I've just recently made another attempt to try to get them to send me more information because I have a feeling that the dollar total, if you were to extrapolate it out, we're going to be over $2 million by the time this is
0: done. Now, the biggest infuriation with this is the fact that this innovation project has received a contract totaling $8 million in federal funds through the most recent state budget. So these were federal dollars that went to the state, and the state uh, turned them over to, as, as I follow what you have written in uh, your most recent column on this, is... Federal dollars came to the state. The state had to turn that over to the State Board of Education for their the, – they had the right to disperse it. And they turned it – they turned this $8 million over to TIP. Is that correct?
1: Yes. That $8 million is in federal funds, um, education, uh, elementary, secondary, and uh, education fund relief funds, the ESSER funds. Um, that money was set aside by the legislature in the in the most recent budget which Roy Cooper signed. Governor Cooper signed that one and that money was appropriated to specifically to the innovation project. Um, since it was such a large dollar figure that it, it had to go through the state board of education as well. They had to take a look at it, take a look at the contract and give their, you know, give a nod to it even though it's already appropriated, it's a done deal. They still had to give their blessing to it. So that went through, I believe end of January, beginning of February, somewhere in there. Um, So that's gone through, and now there's this contract hanging out there. Have they actually Um, received
0: the dollars yet? Has the money been transferred?
1: I don't think so. Um, It doesn't usually happen that fast, usually, from the Fed. And I would have to take a look at the schedule to see when the ESSER funds um, would be transferred by the legislature. If some have already gone through, that's possible since the budget was signed last year and the money, I think, was already received from the Fed at that time. But, you know, again, I don't I don't know the inner workings behind the actual money movement.
0: And before people get upset, uh, you know, your first thought is, wait a minute, we have a conservative legislature, but it was really out of their hands. Uh, they, they had to hand it over to the State Board of Education and the State Board of Education, even though Catherine Truitt is a Republican, she's not a voting member of the board of education and uh, yeah, you're well, ta-
1: the board really didn't have much of a say of it when they got to them. It was already appropriated money. It was a done deal. Um, so the question would be in, I'm still trying to track this down as to why tip was picked for this particular allotment. And that's the, the $8
0: million dollar question. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, that's something that I'm still trying to track down and figure out how it was they came into the mix on that. Um, But, you know, it was just interesting to me that they popped into the budget around the same time I was hearing about it from from
0: districts. Well, and you would think that if you're going to apply for $8 million, you would have to have some pretty detailed information out there as to how you're going to use those funds. I mean, just say, well, here's here's our mission statement. Give us $8 million. That seems a little far-fetched.
1: I need to do some more digging. I have a feeling that maybe there's an application in with the ESSER funds uh, that I can probably pull down. But um, I'm still in the process of trying to track down that monster.
0: What kind of response have you gotten since these articles came out? I guess the second article came out a week ago. What kind of response have you gotten?
1: I've had several board members from uh, various districts that were included in the articles reach out to me, shocked that this amount of money was being paid, and but further shocked that most superintendent contracts have a provision in them that basically says that the district or the Board of Education will pay for certain membership fees, but it doesn't say up to or how much. It just says they'll do it. $30,000? So you know, <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's a lot in membership fees. Um, and there's uh. a lot of professional memberships out there. Wow! Um, there's also the North Carolina School Board Association. So I mean, membership fees are kind of pricey as well.
0: Y- you look at some of these salaries that superintendents get, and that, that's w- one issue. But it'd really be curious just to do a study on how much money each district is spending on these professional association fees. Oh,
1: I would say in the hundreds of thousands a year
0: per district. Yeah, easily. Wow. Well, listen, keep up your uh, good investigative reporting and and stay in touch with us. We want to know more as you uh, uncover the details of this. And, again, infuriating. I mean, all the things, as, as I opened up this segment, all the things that parents are irritated with. As, as, you, as you go out there and uh, you do the investigative reporting, and I know you do a lot on public education, mm-hmm. do, do you find that... Um, moms and dads who haven't been political in the past are saying, wait a minute, this is crazy. I'm going to get involved. I'm going to roll up my shirt sleeves. I'm going to go up to the meetings. I'm going to be involved in the meetings. And I'm even going to run for the school board.
1: A lot. A lot. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Well, that's Actually, encouraging. Lot. Uh, there was a gentleman right here in Wake County who had, uh, for the last better part of six months of last the current school year, he had been trying to seek a uh, mask exemption. For his his two children who had um, uh, medical conditions, they got doctor sign-offs. They went through the grievance processes. It took him almost six months to get through the various stages of the grievance processes. And then within 24 hours of the last stage, they denied him again. So he's an attorney here in Raleigh, and I chronicled his, his journey the entire six months that we finally wrote about it in January. Um, and put out his story, and he has recently just announced that he's going to be challenging the District 7-seat person here in Wake County. He's Good for done. him. He's done dealing with it, so he's going to run.
0: Let me, before I let you go, let me ask you about uh, news that came out just today where a new judge has been uh, given the the mandate to review Judge Lee's decisions related to the Leandro case. What do you know about uh, that? Yeah.
1: Uh, well, the Leandro case has been going on since, um, you know, the early nineties. Right. Um, it's, this is the third judge, it'll be, it'll have gone through, the original judge was Judge Manning, the second judge was, uh, Judge David Lee in Union County, and now it's going to Judge Robinson, um, Robinson was put under the Superior Court, um, I believe as a special judge for, uh, the business courts, mm-hmm. under Pat McCrory in 2016, um... He was reappointed in last year by uh, Governor Cooper to the same spot, so he's been appointed by two separate governors to this spot of different political stripes. So one would think that that means he's fairly, you know, right down the line and um, non-political. So we're taking a look at it now, and uh, it looks like yesterday Justice Paul Newby uh, put out an order to move this case to him.
0: Right. That's what um, I saw, yeah.
1: Yes. And he's going to have to review it and take a look to see if the most recent budget being signed, which was signed about eight days or something like that, after Judge Lee ordered the Comptroller, the Treasurer, and, I, and one other entity to fork over money from the Treasurer, from the Treasury, um, from the General Fund, to pay this $1.7 billion movement of funds here for education. Um, one of which the controller said we don't have the authority to do this. We've never been a part of this case. We're we're confused why we were included. Um, the treasurer said something similar along those lines. Um, but so they're going to have to take a look at whether there was an impact of the budget, the most recent budget, on this order, and whether or not that the parties can actually fulfill that order or that directive given by Lee.
0: Should we read anything into the fact that uh, Judge Newby, who we all know is a conservative, that he chose this particular judge, or is that has nothing to do with the price of eggs?
1: Um, I'm I really can't. I'm not sure. I I wouldn't I wouldn't be able to say what what the motives were or the motivation was. It could be he was up in line for it. Uh, there there could be some some assignment. Um, pattern there, but I'm, I honestly don't know what's behind that.
0: AP, give us um, a 60-second overview of the Leandro case. I just got a text from one of our listeners saying, what, what is this case about?
1: Okay, well, the Leandro case, um, it goes back to 1994. It began with a lawsuit um, that was centered on the state's constitutional duty to provide an opportunity for sound basic education to all public school students. There were funding issues. And the the original case came out of um, Hoke County, Hoke County High School students. Rob Leandro was the one who formed the the original lawsuit. Um, The majority of its 20-year history was overseen by Judge Manning. It was taken over by Judge Lee in 2016. Um, And there have been multiple plaintiffs and people joining the lawsuit in support of either side. Um, But basically the main claim was that the state was giving children, all children, the same educational opportunities in all the districts. There were funding disparities. Um, There was a key point that the formula used for the public funding in education put low-wealth districts at a financial disadvantage because of the disparity in tax revenues in uh, those school districts. So that's in a nutshell where that comes from. Um, it's, It's quite a long
0: history. <laughs> well, and the big argument, too, was the fact that, okay, it's up to the legislature to disperse these funds as they see fit, and Judge Lee came in and said, no, you're not doing it to my satisfaction, so therefore I'm demanding that you hand over this check for 1.7, and that's when the controversy yeah. has been...
1: Well, and the 1.7 comes from a report done by uh, this organization that was hired um, or picked by Lee right. to uh, write a report the, the called the Leandra Report, obviously, and it was done by an organization called West Ed. And uh, I believe that Dr. Terry Stoops at the John Locke Foundation has dissected that report on numerous occasions. And folks who really want to dig into this one should really go visit the John Locke Foundation articles on the backstory dealing with the Leandra report in right. West Ed. No,
0: good, good advice. Yeah, they do, they do a great job on that. AP mm-hmm. Dillon, thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. And I'm going to keep you on speed down and we'll get updates <laughs> on this as it goes along. I appreciate it.
1: Great, thanks for having me. You
0: bet. Stay with us. More news and views coming right up. You your 5 o'clock drive. A drive home should be a delight. This is Tom Lamprecht with more news and views on Talk 96.3 and 103.7. Welcome back in. Today is March 22nd, 2022. A lot of 22s in there. It's also National Goof Off Day. Uh, I assume that was uh, an idea of a socialist. Um, what happened? Yeah, I know. Yeah, Right there. 89 years ago. 1933, FDR legalized the sale of beer and wine, which had been outlawed since 1919. Prohibition officially came to an end. Uh, taking a look at your weather forecast. Mostly cloudy tonight, low around 54. Tomorrow, a chance of showers and thunderstorms after 2 p.m. High tomorrow is around 76. Chance of rain tomorrow, 40%. Then tomorrow night, chance of rain is 70%. And, uh... Thursday more of the same. Thursday's high is gonna be around seventy five, chance of rain seventy percent on Thursday, chance of showers uh diminishing Thursday night. So the chance of rain goes down to about thirty percent on Thursday night. I guess we need the rain. I actually heard the other day that uh, we're in a slight drought condition here in the eastern part of the state. So uh, perhaps, uh, I know, it's nice to get out and do stuff, but we need the rain too. Weather brought to you by our friends at the Ironwood Golf and Country Club. Warmer weather, hey, it's here. What better way to enjoy the outdoors with family and friends than being greenside or poolside? Voted best golf course in Greenville three years in a row, Ironwood Golf and Country Club is waiving all initiation fees and wants you to join in the fun and become a member today. Not a golfer? Ironwood's new social membership includes access to their competition-sized swimming pool, clay service tennis courts, and member-only full-service restaurant. For more information, contact Membership Director Jenna Doyle. Her number is 252-752-4653. Jenna would be happy to show you around, and she'd probably even buy you lunch. Give her a call, 252-752-4653. Um, guess what Guess who won in court Donald Trump Won again uh, Guess who lost Just like I promised right Yeah you did <laughs> That was good uh, Clark Man, He's quick on the button uh, Stormy Daniels Yeah The uh, woman who um, likes to take her clothes off The uh, porn star Stormy Daniels as... Very poor job <laughs> I won't go there, Clark. Uh, Stormy Daniels has lost, and she now has to pay Donald Trump $300,000. This according to CNBC. Friday's ruling is reportedly likely to end the years-long legal fight between Stormy Daniels and Donald Trump, and her claim that the two had a sexual relationship once back in 2006, which Trump denies. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit said it had no jurisdiction over Daniels' appeal regarding— attorney fees because she did not file a notice of appeal within the required 30 days period of a judge granting the fees to Trump. The former president, of course, denies ever having a relationship with Daniels. Trump praised the court's decision in a statement late Monday, reiterating his claim that he never had the relationship uh, with Stormy, whose legal name is Stephanie Clifford. The lawsuit was purely a political stunt and that should never have ever started or allowed to happen. I am pleased with my lawyers. They were able to bring this to a successful conclusion after the court fully rejected her appeal. Now all I have to do is wait for all the money to come in that she owes me. Daniels, on the other hand, said, uh, I am not going to pay one penny. So we'll see. My chance, uh, it's been interesting to see, huh? I, they, they can't. I don't know how you force her to pay, but um, I suppose uh, we'll see where it goes. This was, uh, was this not Avenatti? Wasn't he the guy that was uh, her lawyer in all this? <laughs> and didn't he misappropriate a bunch of funds for that uh, were coming in to her for, I, I don't know, from her films or whatever, and he decided to pocket all that? Boy, I'll tell you what. Anybody that ever had anything to do with Avenatti. uh they're regretting that decision Sarah Palin will she get back into politics so she was the governor then she was the vice president vice presidential candidate under John McCain then was a discovery or somebody had a tv series with her uh of parents Alaska and uh, then she started having family issues I think she and her husband are now divorced um, her daughter was a wild child but now, uh, apparently, since last week's death of Representative Don Young of Alaska, passed away last week, there's talk of her running for his seat. Now, there's going to be a special election. First of all, there's going to be a special primary on June the 11th. Now, I don't know if that—that that might be their scheduled primary for the midterms, but there's going to be an election on June the 11th for the special, uh, for the special primary— And then uh, there will be an August 16th election just for the seat. Now, what's interesting about Alaska, um, if Greg Murphy thinks his district is big, the district that she will be filling for Don Young is the entire state of Alaska. It's one of those uh, few states that have uh, more senators than uh, members of Congress. And uh, that's the situation up in Alaska. So maybe she'll jump back in, throw her in. Hat in the ring, and it might be uh, Representative Sarah Palin. We'll see. Hey, we've got to take another time out. We went a little long with A.P. Dillon. Stay with us. I'll be right back with more News and Views. Back
1: to News and
0: Views. Talk 96.3 and 103.7. Welcome back in. News and Views for a uh, Tuesday. Have you heard the latest word salad from Kamala Harris? Cut to Clark. See if you got it up there
2: governor and I, and we were all um, doing a tour of the library here and um, talking about the significance of the passage of time, right? The significance of the passage of time. So when you think about it, there is great significance to the passage of time in terms of what we need to do to lay these wires, what we need to do to create these jobs. And there is such great significance to the passage of time when we think about a day in the life of our children.
0: and the passage of time. I <laughs> wish I could pass this. Uh. Now, she, they're talking about the $65 billion that the Biden administration is spending on uh, Internet access. Stop and think about it. $65 billion. How many families are there in the United States? I mean, there's about 330 million people. And uh, that would give every person about 200 bucks they could spend on Internet. You stop get, I mean, the, the vast majority is, uh, majority of us already have Internet, right? I mean, we're, we're talking about some isolated individuals, and, you know, okay. It's, uh, I, frankly, I don't think it's the federal government's job to provide Internet. If the state wants to do that, okay, but it's not – I'm sorry. It's not the federal government's job to provide Internet. But even if they were, uh, I—that's. I mean, do we need to be spending that kind of money on internet? And of course, well, you know, we're we're, we're, you know our deficit is how many trillions? So, our debt rather, how many trillion? So what's another sixty-five billion, right? But I mean, listen to what Kamala says. The governor and I were all doing all our tour of library here, and um, we're talking about the significance of the passage of time. And she's shaking her head like, you you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, (laughs) yeah, right? The significance of the passage of time. Then she pauses. Let's let it it sink in, all right? So when you think about it, there's a great significance of the passage of time in terms of what we need to do to lay these waters.
1: <laughs>
0: clark you're terrible <laughs> you can't do that to me in the middle of something like this oh oh my we have a good time here this is our vice president the word salad queen By the way, did you hear what um, former Attorney General Barr came out and talked about Joe Biden and the Hunter Biden laptop? It was an ongoing investigation. Of course, New York Times last week finally came out and said, oh, yeah, that laptop laptop was legitimate, which the New York Post said 18 months ago. Barr, you know, he's got his new book out, One Damn Thing After Another. First of all, he says that he, you know, that – Donald Trump wanted him to give him the inside information about the laptop. Now, he, Barr did tell the president that there was a laptop, and, he, and Trump wanted it to be expanded upon and this information released. And Barr said, damn it, Mr. President, I'm not going to talk to you about Hunter Biden, period. And, uh, you know, that was a little bit of a confrontation. But now Barr has come out and just said he is just outraged. That Vice President Joe Biden during the debates back before the general election out and out lied. He knew that laptop was not Russian disinformation. He knew it. And, and uh, Attorney General Barr is just flabbergasted and just, he just is in shock that the president would have been such, I'm being blunt here, and this is basically what Barr said, that the president was such an out and out liar. Unbelievable. Hey, our thanks to AP Dillon. Thank you for listening. We'll do it again tomorrow at 5 o'clock. We'll see you then. Bye bye, everybody.
2: All right, all right, all right.